Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, after a one-day gap, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. No gap, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And there can't be a gap because he's the only one who knows how to tape this thing. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so uh, the only thing that comes to my mind to start is that there's a poll out from Siena. I know we hate polls and we don't trust polls. I, I trust polls when the margins are large and when they're not doing a head-to-head pick of something. I think they're, they, they can still – what they can tell you is how, you know, very ac- very accurately – how an elect- a close election is going to come out, but they can tell you other things. And so there is a Siena poll uh, about uh, a monthly poll that comes out from Siena, which is a New York State college, uh, about the Andrew Cuomo's general approval rating in relation to the coronavirus. And despite the controversy and horror uh, of the revelations that he and his administration lied about nursing home deaths and uh, misallocated them deliberately, it it would appear. Um, He, uh, he's still at around 62% approval. uh, 61% approval down from 63% approval last month getting positive grades for communicating with New Yorkers, 67 to 33, providing accurate information, 61 to 36. He gets mixed grades for managing the vaccine rollout, 48 to 49, and implementing the right plans for reopening New York. And But they do give him a negative grade, 39 to 55, on making public all data about COVID deaths of nursing home patients. So what this tells you is uh, the public is able to look at the Cuomo lie uh, say it's bad, and yet it has absolutely no effect on his public opinion rating. So let's, I want to give you guys a thought experiment. We keep talking about negative polarization. What about positive polarization in this sense, which is that uh, people uh, make up their minds about something and then their minds stay made up? In other words, it's not that, it's not that, uh, so you have uh, liberals in New York, they have a liberal governor, uh, and they, having decided that they're fine with him, they're fine with him. And it's not really that there are, you know, evil Republicans that they need to own by saying what they're saying. They just, uh, you know, they like it. They made oh. their decision. You know, it's like they liked the movie. They're not going to decide later that they didn't like the movie. I I think it still is, has to do with negative partisanship. I'll tell you why. Um Although I am more skeptical of the polls than you are, John, uh, the Siena poll finding um, uh, jibes with my non-scientific and anecdotal experience, whereby I have tried aggressively to rub the new Cuomo revelations into the faces of, <laughs> of people who worship Cuomo, and they are absolutely still behind him. And in their discussing why they still like him, they inevitably bring up Ron DeSantis. They bring up Florida. They bring up all the terrible, crazy Republican things that happened during the um, 
course of the pandemic and why they are still thankful and appreciative um, to be in uh, New York under the supposedly steady guidance of Andrew Cuomo. Okay, but what there was a, that that's interesting to me because I, I hope they read they do this poll again in say two or three months because with this with similar questions because one of the things buried it in the kind of odds and ends bottom part of this poll was uh, a question about whether you think the pan the worst of the pandemic is behind us or the worst is ahead of us and you know most voters including independent voters felt like the worst of it's behind us this idea that like we've, we've gotten through the worst of it uh, it better days ahead with the exception of of uh, the breakout on race white vo- white uh, respondents said they think the worst is behind us black respondents said the worst is still to come so that was interesting but i think this this weird balancing act that people are doing with cuomo will only last insofar as he moves away from draconian lockdowns, you know, opening things start to open up. We have some resumption uh, of normal life because if he doesn't do that, then I then, John, I think he did the, the polarization will have to give way to the reality of, you know, endless pandemic lockdown, endless school closures, endless, you know, uh, emergency powers. That's not I don't think that people are going to give him endless uh, goodwill if that continues. Totally disagree. I, I think <laughs> Abe, it couldn't be more right, uh, in part because the, the movement seems entirely untethered to empirical conditions. It's not based on empirical conditions. They're get, telling pollsters what pollsters think they don't want to hear. And the more they're asked about it, the more people poll this issue, the more they're going to get a positive response. And I think it's probably, probably the exact same thing that's happening with Donald Trump since he's recovered in the wake of January 7th, in part because people are still asking like how and underlying all that is how could you possibly still support this guy? And the answer is, screw you. He's my guy. <laughs> it has nothing to do with this guy. It has everything to do with how much I hate you and your stupid question and your stupid asking me about my stupid opinions. Go screw. But do you think that's what's happening to people yes, who are I being do. asked I this question about Cuomo? It's utterly unthinking. I it totally agree with you. I totally agree with you about. Trump and the Republicans. And, you know, this is, I think this is a long standing fact about what has happened in polling is that, you know, we've discussed this question whether people lie to pollsters, whether pollsters do what they, you know, and all that. I don't think people lie to pollsters. I mean, I think people lie on public opinion surveys because they, say things they think they should say sometimes, you know, sort of social, social, what is that acceptability bias or some term like that? But uh, clearly people on the right uh, have become very literate in including, you know, yahoos and crazies and QAnon people and all that, maybe more than, than most uh, to uh, the meta meaning of, of, in American politics and what they're being asked if they're being asked certain types of questions and they answer the questions uh, in a way that is potentially more the most provocative way they can answer it, which is sort of like goes against what we tend to understand about human nature, which is that it's not, it's not that confrontational people in actual exchanges or something that don't, aren't that confrontational. But that, um, you know, they want to make a point. Um, and, you know, we're seeing this now. And this is the $64,000 question about the Republican Party. Uh, Trump's poll numbers remaining high in the wake of uh, everything of the last three months. 
Uh, not as high as when he was president. In other words, he has like a, a approval rating among Republicans around 75%. That was, you know, in the 90s, uh, in the months before the election. So the idea that he hasn't lost a step or anything with the Republican Party is not true. Still, it is, you know, astonishingly high. And, um, you know, uh, that question, if people are asking Republicans this question, do you like him or do you not like him? Hi, I'm from a polling firm. And they're not going to give a pollster the satisfaction of, of, of expressing doubts because that guy who's calling them is not on their side. But it gives Democrats not enough credit to suggest they're not sophisticated as Republican voters. I mean, even say that sentence out loud is, makes it laughable. Um, they, too, understand the dynamics here. All of us have been privy to the same information environment since May. <clears throat> they know that there has been an, an effort to create a cult of personality around Andrew Cuomo to contrast with people like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and half a dozen other Republican governors. And they're evaluating Andrew Cuomo, not based on, you know, the empirical metrics that we're all privy to, but how he contrasts with those people. And they want to create, they want to convey that to pollsters and, and create a contrary narrative that is disseminated in the press. They're as sophisticated as anybody else. And also, you know, don't forget, Cuomo was a leading figure of neg- negative partisanship. Um, he was the champion of, of you know, um, gloating when uh, he thought he had the opportunity to point out that uh, some Republican governor wasn't doing the, the job that uh, he or she sh- should have been doing. And, and, they, and so his supporters take the, the very question as uh, Republicans pounce, and, I, and I'm not going to let you pounce. Very interesting, I think. Meanwhile, let's talk about Ron DeSantis for a second, because he released, um, you know, one of these new weird uh, pseudo event things where you put put out a speech on Twitter or you put it out on YouTube. Um, And, uh, you know, the tweet that accompanied it says Florida schools are open. And every parent has the right to send their kids to school for in-person instruction. Those who insist on keeping the schoolhouse doors closed are ignoring evidence and placing special interests ahead of the best interests of children and families. So, uh, you know, Abe, you mentioned that, the, you know, your your interlocutors, you know, uh, bring up the counterexample of Ron DeSantis. But, you know, we do have this uh, Florida has its schools open and there are no super spreader uh, events in Florida. Florida's case rate remains uh, better than uh, even in the wake of the bad outbreak was better than than the uh, the bluest states with the uh, toughest lockdowns. What do we uh, and you know if you're looking at somebody who is building a record for the future in the Republican Party, uh, the guy to look at is DeSantis. Well, there was just, yeah, there was just that style section piece of the New York Times over the weekend saying, look at all of New York society, you know, all of the restaurants, all the places people like to go hang out. Those New Yorkers are doing that. They're just doing it in Florida. The same restaurants have opened in West Palm Beach and they're all hanging out there enjoying it. We've had story after story and evidence of people leaving states like California to move to Florida. He's been a success story and he should absolutely, you know, take a take a little bit of a victory lap here. He's been he's been, as Noah said, he's been in, intensely the focus of a left left-leaning mainstream media narrative that it's a disaster when it hasn't been like quantitatively and qualitatively in terms of how people are living their lives in Florida. And I mean, I know this in part because I have family and friends there, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's a genuine 
different approach to this virus. It's one that talks about risk and mitigating it, but doesn't make absolute 100% safety the issue. And we know from over the weekend, which you guys talked about, the CDC absolutely has been fully politicized on the issue of school openings, back down from what the science says, to talk to what they call stakeholders, which you and I all know as teachers unions. Oh, and civil rights groups, by the way. Oh, yes, of course. Civil rights groups are very much uh, involved in, in in determining what the science says about how a virus uh, transmits itself in a, in a closed space. Um, the fatal weakness, perhaps, on the part of advocates for this sort of thing, um, in the press primarily, is that the vast majority of them are very young. And what we're seeing now in media, and I'm writing about this today, I think. You had a Politico headline today saying, you know, all these teachers are freaking out over school closures. Republicans are trying to, quote, weaponize the situation to advance their political narratives. The New York Times echoed this in a uh, in a piece yesterday that they tweeted out saying, Republicans in Congress are hammering the issue as a way to win back alienated women and suburban voters. It's all sort of the pounce narrative. They're pouncing on, uh, they pounce on something that's objectively bad for Democrats. This is a campaign of emotional manipulation so transparent, it can only work on someone who doesn't have children. You need to not be a parent to be vulnerable to this kind of blatant, obvious emotional blackmail. But there is, there's one group they are pandering to that does have kids, that's mothers. Because if you notice that the part of that narrative that you're describing, which I agree is ridiculous, is, is you know, these women, mothers in crisis. You know, it's the mothers who are being particularly, you know, hard hit by these lockdowns and Republicans are taking advantage of their of the chaos of motherhood. So I think that message will resonate with, with Democratic-leaning mothers who think, the whole world is against them, this is, perhaps. This is, so this the, is the thing about the pounce narrative, which is just the uh, the over the the overarching theme of the pounce narrative is the, the press will always tell you what democratic vulnerabilities are. They know exactly what they are, and they get out in front of them in the most ham-fisted way possible with the pounce narrative, trying to throw brushback pitches at you to say, "Don't you dare talk about this." What's really important about this political piece, and you're right, because one of the authors. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think one of the authors is 25 years old. Uh, so you, that kind of makes your, your point. Although, uh, no, you're a little young to be doing the get off my lawn narrative. Uh, if I could just I say, looking at you as an, Noah's error, an early they're masters of psychological warfare. Fair enough. Um, but uh, what's interesting is the, 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 the uh, contrast that's drawn between the Republican agenda and the Democratic agenda in the piece. So in other words, the Republican agenda is enough already. Get the kids back to school. Let's get the kids back to school so that life can go back to normal, so they can not be destroyed and have some normality in all this. And the Democratic narrative is we are about to throw an enormous amount of money at parents. And that's what's important. And we haven't been allowed to do this for decades because of the nature of how our politics has devolved. And we're changing that up. So what's happening now is money, federal money, is going to rain down on parents as a result of this $2 trillion bill and various other things that are going to happen. And they're going to like us because we are changing the relationship between families and society and families and government and making them a partner, which is, of course, uh, a uh, you know is a is a euphemism for making them 
uh, dependent or making them grateful for the largesse of politicians. Uh, not that they don't believe that this is a good thing. And by the way, not that some of it may not be a good thing. The, you know, if you believe that there is a social interest in uh, helping parents of small children, uh, you know, avoid being admired in poverty or something like that, um, it is true that the purchasing power or the per- whatever the value of a lot of the you know, the child tax deduction and various other things has been degraded over time. Uh, and, you know, in the, and, and so therefore uh, restoring it to the level that it once was, you know, in sort of in relative dollar terms is, is something that I think actually most people support if you're not going to have a flat tax. Um, but even so, you have Republicans saying right now the facts say open the schools our kids are dying kids are kids brains are atrophying their social skills are dying they're depressed they're going to people are you know having to take their kids uh, to emergency rooms because of mental health issues all of that and and Democrats say the cavalry is coming in the form of money so don't worry about it I mean, that's an interesting kind of pretty stark division. I mean, we keep talking about how we have false, you know, our politics, everything is symbolic, right? There's all this, you know, it's all the, do you kneel or do you not kneel before a football game? You know, what, that kind of stuff. But this is real. This is uh, a liberal view of the proper relation between government and the citizenry um, and a conservative view that, Society needs to be in order and things need to function in an orderly, proper, understandable, organized way. And this haphazard business in which nobody knows what's going on from one moment to the next in relation to schooling is an evil. It is a a way in which government is failing the citizens uh, who have, you know, engaged them uh, for the purpose of providing this order and this stability and this set of recognizable and understandable rules and how things work. Well, and it's a cheap payoff if you want to see it as just a sort of payoff, because you might be the parent who cashes that check, but in three months, when you're looking at what's my kid going to be doing day in and day out in the fall when they should be in school, and we still don't have a commitment that you know some of these teachers are going to go back to school, when that kind of chaos and ambiguity reigns, the check that you might have spent is going to feel a lot less like an answer, right? And at the same time, that wealthy parents have can opt out of this and already have. So they know what they'll be doing all summer. They'll know what they do be doing in the fall when their kids are back in school five days a week. And it's the, it's the most vulnerable folks who can't afford those options who will be trapped. And having a check in your pocket, although very nice and extremely crucial for a lot of families right now, isn't an answer to that problem. So the problem will still be there unless the administration will actually take on the unions and these local officials will really take on the unions. Well, we know they're not going to. Right. They, that, that, I think, was the interesting lesson of the first three weeks of the Biden presidency that I, I expect startled all of us and maybe startled everybody who's listening. Uh, this didn't seem like a hard call. And, and they were making encouraging noises before before the inauguration. And somehow somebody and got read the riot act. 
I mean, you know, when when new CDC director Walensky started saying uh, the science says we should reopen schools, uh, you know, in the not only at the White House but before then, she was actually echoing what Biden had said in sort of general terms: we've got to get the schools open. Biden said over and over again in November, December, January, and then something happened inside. Where they had a they had a, a pivot, they had a hinge moment where they could have said we're opening schools and stuffed the teachers unions, uh, and said you know there's a new captain in town, but he you know but he's a captain for everybody and not just for you. And they didn't do it. And we need but to I don't take know what that- we were expecting. All you had to do was observe how teachers unions had had held hostage cities of Chicago and Washington, D.C. and New York City and Los Angeles and half a dozen other metropolitan areas to know who was the real power in town. We knew Joe Biden was a weak president going into this presidency. We've been shown countless times that he is a weak president without any coattails, without a whole lot of well, uh, you know, well wishes on the part of his constituents on the left, that he's a placeholder and they're seeking to fill the vacuum that has been left by a very weak executive with bribery by bribing you with your own money. It's not going to work. How much is your child's mental health worth? We don't really, we don't know how Biden world works. We really don't. And, you know, it's going to take Bob Woodward writing his first book uh, in the middle of next year or something like that to get some sense of how this works. But what if it's just as simple as Dr. Jill Biden talking, you know, the educator talking in in Joe's ear and saying, you know, you cannot expect that our teachers, they're our heroes, they're the front line. And, you know, let's face it, I mean, they just, they're, they're so scared and, you know, they, we can't expect them to, yeah, that's, uh, and then he's like, you're right. I mean, you know, it could, it, it, we don't know. I mean, you're looking at this as, you know, Biden is, uh, um, you know, is uh, Muriel Bowser or Biden is uh, uh, the mayor of Chicago, whose name, uh, Lori Lightfoot. Um, But, you know, he's not even doing what they've done. I mean, even Bowser, as incompetent and exactly and foolish as she is, right? But, but this is my point. I don't need a Bob Woodward book to believe the evidence of my own eyes. Okay, wait. This is right before us. You already see. Now you're seeing murmurs of dissent from places like Vox. The the yeah. the outgrowth the outrage is building. They're desperate for Joe Biden to pick a fight, and he doesn't have a fight in him. Right, but in Chicago, in Washington, these unions have a very outsized political effect. I mean, as unionization itself has declined, public sector unions have grown because there are more public sector employees, there are more people working in schools, and things like that. And so to the extent that you cater to a trade union movement, even though these are not trade unions, um, you know, that this is whom you cater to and uh, they, they count, they are responsible for, represent quite a lot of people in these municipalities. Joe Biden got 81 million votes. There are 4.2 million members, I think, of the, of the educational teachers unions. Like, he is not in the in power terms. He is not beholden to them, the way he is appearing beholden to them. And so, I think something else is going on here. 
that isn't just explicable by the you know classic dynamics of uh, democratic power politics. Before we get, oh, go ahead. Christine. I was just going to say that that one thing, that one thing that we haven't uh, explored, that I think you see it on the margins that they don't actually say it out loud. But the equity talk that that you know he says will infuse his whole administration. If you look at the number of uh, non-white parents who are fearful of their kids returning to school, and certainly the number of non-white teachers who express that same concern, and th- there's a there's an issue of race here that I think is might explain in part they're tiptoeing around just saying sure. we need to open things up, even though those kids are actually the ones being harmed most egregiously by these policies. So look, we're talking about Joe Biden and what it means to be president, and and uh, I also so I want to commend to you the latest podcast from our friend Dan Senor, his podcast post-corona that I've been telling you is one of the most uh, vibrant and interesting new podcasts on the market available at the iTunes store and app and uh, Stitcher and Google Play. Uh, his latest uh, episode uh, is with uh, John Dickerson of CBS News, who uh, whose latest book, uh, The Hardest Job in the World, is about the presidency and the discussion that he and 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 Dickerson, who is a a, a sprightly, amusing, smart, um, and uh, uh, politically uncategorizable uh, guy, I would say, uh, is this question of whether or not, as we've been hearing for uh, decades, is the presidency too big a job? Is it too? Is there? It, does it? Does it have too much power? Uh, does are the tentacles of the of the uh, executive branch too spread out? Can a person? corral them, contain them, control them, and run them, and uh, particularly uh, in the middle of a crisis and then coming out of a crisis, what is it that a president can or should or will be able to do to affect not only change but to provide continuity? And uh, it is a terrific discussion. Uh, It follows discussions Dan has had with Neil Ferguson about the history of pandemics, uh, Adam Grant about the business psychology of pandemics, Billy Bean about sports and the pandemics, me about Broadway and popular culture in the wake of the pandemics, uh, Raihan Salam of the Manhattan Institute about crime in New York and New York in general, whether they'll come back after the pandemics. Uh, it's just great. Post-corona, Dan Senor, go to your podcast provider and subscribe. And we thank uh, post Corona for sponsoring the commentary magazine podcast. Uh, l- let me talk about something else. Uh, I'm now, this is, I'm calling an audible cause we haven't, we didn't even discuss this in the pre-show or haven't discussed it at all, but because we're talking about the discontinuities, of the Biden administration, we have a weird thing going on, uh, in, in, uh, in foggy bottom at the state department. Um, we have, uh, and, and at the White House. So it's now three weeks or a month or something like that, and it's increasingly clear that Joe Biden has decided that he is not going to call or talk to Bibi Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, um, who about whose relationship, his relationship with Bibi, he has bragged uh, during the course of his campaign that he's known him for 40 years when he was a senator bb was you know the number two in the embassy in washington or he was at the un and they know each other they're friends they're friendly and all this um and yet he is like a u.s ally that biden not only hasn't called but there's a very pointed effort to make it clear somehow without being a, like confrontational that biden doesn't want to make this call where they're not having a call now there are be a couple of reasons for this. BB is under indictment 
right now is standing trial on these three corruptions charges. Uh, there's a there's a, a campaign going on, political campaign in Israel for another prime ministerial election, uh, party election, and so maybe Biden doesn't want to be viewed as uh, uh, putting his finger on the scale by by dealing with Bibi, even though you know he is the prime minister. Um, but you have to add to this stuff that's going on at the State Department, where. Robert Malley uh, has been appointed the lead negotiator on Iran. Robert Malley, a, an Obama uh, administration official um, and Clinton administration official uh, who in part came to prominence by denying Bill Clinton's account of the failure of the uh, U.S.-Israel-Palestinian discussions at Camp David in 2000, where Clinton said it was Arafat's fault, it had been Arafat's fault that the that the negotiations fell apart and that the Intifada started, and Mali wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books saying Clinton was wrong, that it was Israel's fault. Um, he is said to be incredibly adept, able, smart, knowledgeable, um, but he was part of the team that negotiated the, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, uh, and uh, it is provocative given uh, a lot of this, that he is the choice. And even more provocative is the news that he, I believe it's he, will be hiring Matt Duss, a, uh, I mean, I, I think it's fair without moral suasion or, you know, moral to say that he is an anti-Israel force uh, in, in sort of Middle East, the Middle East think tank and blogging world. Um so much so that he was fired, I believe, or demoted by uh, the Center for America. He was a blogger at some liberal think tank and basically got canned uh, because he was too, uh, because he said things that crossed the line into, you know, borderline, I don't know, I can't even remember what it was, but like stuff. He had compared Israel's naval blockade of Gaza to segregation and apartheid, right. anti-discrimination. right. So, um, we've been talking for... Which know, is, by the way, completely pathological. I mean, you really yes. have to just dwell on the fact that the Center for American Progress thought that was so insane that they had to let him go. Right, right. Um, Talk about failing up. Uh, so, he, you've got these two um, uh, very anti-Israel voices that have gone into roles in the State Department under... Uh, Tony Blinken, and uh, who, you know, has uh, said encouraging and proper things about some of these things. Um, what do we make of it, Abe? Well, you know, remember in, in governance and in foreign policy, especially optics really matter. Um, so uh, whether or not um, the Biden administration eventually follows up uh, this this period of um, chilly silence with with BB with with policy or or sort of you know conduct that we can support um, this still says something a huge part of especially the early days of the Obama uh, administration's dealings with uh, Israel were also um, typified by uh, by uh, poor optics um, don't forget there was like uh, uh, Obama keeping BB waiting uh, at the White House for uh, some 
crazy amount of time before uh, speaking with him. Um, um, things, well, things there was a that- meeting. He had a meeting yeah. with Jewish, you know, with sort of leading American uh, Jewry in which he said he wanted to put daylight between uh, his government and Israel and talked about wanting tough love. And there was a clear effort to create a discontinuity with the Bush administration on, on Israel. And it was his most noxious relationship on the planet with a with an ally i mean israel is an ally and yet he clearly the most grievous personal relationship that obama had with a foreign leader was with netanyahu and of course so, that's yeah go ahead no i just so i think basically you know I, I think there's no reason not to take this as a very deliberate statement um at least that one that the administration wants to broadcast about what what it thinks of um uh, U.S.-Israel relationship, U.S.-Israel relations at the current at the current moment. It's not. It's not. I don't think merely um, not putting a, a finger on the scale uh, concerning uh, Netanyahu's uh, own domestic tribulations, because this is putting a finger on the scale. By the way, if, if you don't if you don't uh, t- talk to him, you're that that is saying plenty. I uh, I think that some of this can be explained. At least the refusal to call uh, uh, Netanyahu or to have a call with Netanyahu, however it works, uh, means that the uh, the grievous personal relationship between Obama and, and Netanyahu uh, is, a, is a matter of that remains a horrible burr to people that we, you know, we, we think of this as, you know, being almost like in another era because so much has happened since uh, the Obama administration ended. You know, we have the Abraham Accords and the movie. The whole, the whole, the whole. There's been sort of revolutionary or evolutionary, dramatic evolutionary change in the Middle East, and all of this is sort of like back in some weird mythical past. But maybe not to them. You know. Uh, you, you know. Also, it strikes me that you know, as as I've said several times in this podcast, and that we've all said, I think it, because it's it would be very difficult for the administration to reverse the actual policy gains uh, that, that, um, that were enacted during the Trump administration regarding Israel. Um, they are kind of relegated to gestures like this. It, I mean, o- optics is kind of the, the, the field, uh, in which they, they can knock Israel more readily than, um, in, in policies because speci- precisely because the policies they would seek to reverse would be so problematic for the U S to, to do so. I mean, the real question here, the optics are the optics. So it's also a message to Biden's own, the people who care about this, who are relatively small in number uh, in in the United States. Um, You know, you have sort of like a pro-Israel activist and anti-Israel activists and people like that who sort of pay attention to these issues of who's being hired for non confirmable positions uh, in cabinet departments. I mean, that's kind of like a, that's, we're already going way down the list of, you know, people who understand what this is, but um, they, the question is, do they want to convey a message to the think tank world, to the foreign policy establishment and all of that, that they uh, want to figure out some way to restore some kind of antagonism between Israel and the United States, even though they've said they don't want it. Uh, Blinken has said he doesn't want it. The other way of looking at this is um, as a kind of like 
naive, starry-eyed, goo-goo thing, which is like, look, no one's more knowledgeable than Robert Malley. I mean, he is uh, universally acknowledged as the most knowledgeable. He speaks Farsi, he speaks Arabic, he speaks Hebrew, he speaks Swahili, he speaks, you know, Martian. Um, and, uh, you know, his father was 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 a Jewish-Egyptian, anti-Zionist, pro-Zionist, started eight magazines and all of this. So he's so knowledgeable. And, you know, he's not going to make policy. He's just there to work out and fulfill the policy. So we're going to take the most knowledgeable person and put him there and we will make the policy and he won't. Um, you know, I mean, that would kind of be what I would expect if I had a private conversation with, with, with Anthony Blinken. That's sort of what he would say to me, which is, you know, a guy who is not even in a confirmable, who is going there as an envoy to Iran or envoy to the question of how to reopen the JCPOA isn't going to play any role in this. And, you know, I'm, I'm the guy, he's not the guy, but do we, uh, do we, you know, because I went to high school with him in France. So I know, you know, I've known him since high school. I don't know. Um, Do we, do we think that any of that is real? Uh, I don't, it's too soon to say, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) right. But, you know, Activists in, in, in administrations um, have their say one way or another. Uh, if if the the like the more sort of traditional establishment types don't do what they say, they leak like crazy. They write op eds. They 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 do whatever. So his so Matt Malley's you know being so prominent in the mix will will have an impact one way or the other. Right. I mean, it's interesting because of course that's the challenge. There's a challenge here because, of course, this was the challenge that Samantha Power faced when her entire worldview was upended uh, as a, you know, as an academic, as a writer and a thinker and a Pulitzer Prize winner was upended by the lengths she was supposed to go to to defend the uh, Obama administration's refusal to engage with Syria on its uh, on its uh, genocidal practices, and she chose power and her relationships inside the Obama administration to you know like try to remain true to her own intellectual legacy. So uh, we and you know we obviously saw a lot of this in the Trump administration also. So well, I don't want to say this is a particular thing for for Democrats, but 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 look at how it was discussed. And I was thinking of Stephen Miller and his views on immigration and immigrants in general. And that was just for four years we heard nothing about except what a horrible human being he was. He was beyond the pale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean. Matt Duss's views are just as beyond the pale to a segment of Americans and should be because he's, you know, he's just as extreme in his views. And so now he's going to be there. And of course, he'll be influencing policymaking. That's why he was brought on. And it's it's interesting to me that we find uh, less attention and focus and concern about these folks now, because I guess because it's the Biden administration, uh, certainly on the, on the part of the mainstream media. But there's a whole story developing now in terms of how you cover these people who are kind of co-opted by the power they embrace as officials when, and, and the CDC director, of course, is the most recent example, but we'll see many of these in foreign policy. People who had a principled view of how they should go about doing things then gain power and the pressures that that power brings to bear and the pressures that, you know, Biden's reelection needs and whatever interest groups he's, he's uh, pandering to need mean that they have to make that choice. And yes, Samantha Power is a perfect example, but, you know, this is going to be a problem for Blinken if the people who are around him 
are going are happily willing to cave on principle or or not you know or, or pursue their activism and he's the one who's going to be made to cave i don't know it, it, i think it's something that's really worth watching in terms of um how these folks embrace their power or don't and how they're treated by the media in terms of the level of criticism they get for exercising that power we do, well, i don't see enough yeah. of that yet uh, in terms of people like dust for example well it's always it's always the moments where the rubber meets the road that we we learn this in, in sort of in in theory you can get all sorts of penumbras and emanations from appointments or, you know, sentences that are allowed in documents that might have been edited out at another time or something like that. But it's when there's a crisis, when there is a moment at which, you know, uh, Israel has to strike, uh, you know, Damascus or, you know, uh, something, uh, a cold war to a hot war starts developing on the border with Lebanon, if that happens or something like that. Then what in that moment, what is the ins- what is the impulse? What is the theory that undergirds the impulse to how you respond? Um, uh, who are you responding to? Where is the anger expressed? Uh, and, and, and all of that, that that's where we'll that's where we'll know. But um, I, I do think that this OBB's oh, friendship with, uh, you know, with Biden uh, will save us or something like that. Um, us, I don't know who us is in this context, but I mean, they, you know, that's a serious and blah, 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 blah. and you know, he was there for eight years, and you know, you know that uh, Biden was kind of obsessively hated. He hated Bibi personally, hated her personally, and uh, and you know, uh, Biden is loyal, and I, I assume he hated him by the end of the administration, also, and he's standing there saying, you know, I'm not giving him the time of day. When it, when it was helpful to him, uh, he would talk about the relationship with Bibi when he was, you know, like snoring after Jewish votes and, uh, you know, philanthropy, or, uh, donations or something like that, but not, you know, but not not fully and not completely. So this is something that bears watching. There's nothing, there's nothing yet, you know, I can't jump on it yet, but it bears watching. And I, well, my guess is it's not going anywhere good, but, you know. Who knows? Um, yeah, the, the silence is only a bad sign. It's, there's nothing yeah, good about it. Yes. Right. Uh, Abe, let me ask you something. Why do just four companies control 80% of the U.S. meat industry? Because big food crushes the little guy. You can help change that with today's sponsor, moinkbox.com. Why are 97% of the chicken served in the U.S. dipped in chlorine? Simple, because big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. That's why you need moinkbox.com, which delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month. Cancel Anytime. Moink, founded by an eighth generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it was the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. So, 
Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now, and listeners to this show will get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. Uh, so what do we want to talk about now? Who's got, who's got something uh, fun? Talk about. Oh, it's not fun, but I I thought we were going to talk a little bit about Pelosi uh, announcing forming oh, the a commission. commission, right? Yes. Because we have, you know, Noah in particular has I think made a good case for the need for this for future reference. Right. right. So Nancy Pelosi says she's going to she's going to establish a commission to study the events of uh, January sixth and what led up to them and all of that. Um, so. Uh, in line with my now belief that everything that happens in Washington now happens in the worst possible way, like, uh, and, 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 and is, is, is terrible and shouldn't happen because it's worse than doing it at all. Uh, I now believe that this is a terrible idea and the worst possible thing that you could possibly do, which is have a partisan commission sponsored by Democrats that Republicans are going to refuse, either will not be invited to participate in or will refuse to participate in that is not bipartisan, that does not have uh, as its aim or its goal uh, fact-finding, but rather uh, creating a uh, a political narrative that is helpful to Democrats. And when it is released, it will end up doing more harm than good because everybody who believes that this was, you know, an, an insurrectionary event that has, you know, terrible long-term consequences already believes that and doesn't need the commission to prove it. And the possibility of uh, a process that um, uh, educates and informs everybody else and might start, you know, changing minds or changing attitudes or changing perspectives is not possible under these circumstances. Noah, as the as the supporter of the commission, where are you on my everything is terrible theory here? Oh well, everything is surely terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't dispute that. I mean, there's <clears throat> you can't argue. There's there's plenty of people now who are going to say, "Oh, we can't have this because it's unity and painful, and we can't we can't actually know what happened because we just have to move on and moving on." is part of uh, catharsis and we have to move on to move on. Um, the Senate voted in a bipartisan fashion to say that we don't know everything that happened on January 6th. Now they declined to tug on the thread. They just let dangle there. They said, ah, we're just not going to bother to do that because we got to, we got to pass Joe Biden's agenda. We got to get near attendant confirmed and Republicans said, ah, we just want to move on, move on, move on. But they can't undo that. They affirmed definitively that, we don't know all the details and to fail to examine this um, would be a dereliction, a, a, a craven act of cowardice that defies the effort to establish a parallel. Um, you're saying essentially that this terroristic attack on the seat of government cannot be examined thoroughly and definitively because it might embarrass some people who were a part of it or who were supportive of it or who are insufficiently dedicated to investigating it. A lot of people's uh, political futures are bound up in not knowing what happened that day. And I don't, I, I, I struggle to find the words to describe how utterly outrageous what an absolute abdication of authority that is and how insulting 
it is to to American voters. So I don't anticipate that this will be the definitive exploration of events that that we need, but it will at least be an effort in that regard. And uh, posterity demands nothing less. By the way, it will also now potentially, uh, depending on what the revelations would be, would embarrass the Democrats who fail to see through uh, the 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 uh, calling of witnesses um, and and more fully a- airing what happened during the impeachment trial. I mean, here here's here's my problem uh, because everything is politics, and whatever politicians do is politics. And uh, whatever Nancy Pelosi does is, you know, intensely political. My concern uh, is that, uh, you know, just as Republicans, as you say, don't have any real skin in the game of, uh, you know, trying to figure out what happened and establish the connections and all of that. uh, Democrats want to use any such thing as a means of destroying the Republican Party. I mean, they're all but explicit about this. Um, uh, Sarah Jacobs, a California uh, congresswoman, uh, said uh, just said what was needed was a truth commission. Uh, you know, uh, to to reveal the gory and the glory. It's white supremacy. We need to see what white supremacy has done to our country. Um, so that is a, you know, I, I mean. Understand, it's a prejudged conclusion. She has already compared what will, what this will do by calling it a truth commission with South Africa's investigation of the apartheid regime. Uh, why would anybody... Do you think, under these conditions, Noah, that the report that is produced by Nancy Pelosi's investigators that I assume will only be staffed by, by Democrats... That when it comes out and we read it, that there won't be stuff in it that'll make us vomit because it, they'll bring in things that don't that aren't connections, just in order to ride their hobby horses. Half of it will be about Fox, for example. Like it'll all be about Fox, or it'll all be about Rush Limbaugh, or it'll all be you know whatever. However you want to slice it, Noah, you're you're making a squinty, confused expression on your face. I'm completely confused. I don't even. I, I, is that even on the table? I mean, I haven't read anything to the effect of this is a commission that will only and exclusively be staffed by Democrats to advance Democratic interests. But it if, will. If, well, then it's not a 9/11 style commission. I didn't say it was. Then it's a not an independent style. bipartisan commission. That's what she's saying she wants. Where did she say that? She said we need a commission. She said we need a 9-11 style commission. Yeah, I know. Meaning we need something that will, there'll be hearings on television and stuff like that. That's not what she means because no Republican in the House. Uh, the question is who's on the commission? So you might be reading a little in between the lines. I'm not putting it past her okay. for her to do something as I'm reading contemptuous as that. Well, if she, yeah, because if it's a 9-11 style commission, then it's a bipartisan commission with ex office holders staffed by a former governor with uh, a high regard like Tim Kaine or not Tim Kaine. Um, my former, the president of my former university. I'm yeah. Uh, his uh, name, Tom, governor Keen. Of New Jersey. Tom, Tom Keen. Keen. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, it's New been a long time since yeah. I was in college. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a nine 11 style commission. That's a bipartisan blue ribbon commission of the sort that Joe Biden loves. Uh-huh. If it's not that, then so, it's so it'll be, partisan. so it'll be, um, 
it'll be a bipartisan commission uh, with ex office holders and you know senior officials like I don't know either they'll be the Lincoln Project people will be the Republicans and you'll have Ramsey Clark for the Democrat. I mean, you'll have the the likelihood is that the commission will be a foregone conclusion by the min- at the minute that it is created uh, because Nancy Pelosi does not believe in bipartisanship or independent fact-finding. She is a deeply partisan Democrat and has been for 60, 70, 80 years. Uh, the you know daughter of a Democratic politician from Baltimore uh, and, uh, you know, and has never had, has never in her entire political career had to have any kind of uh, relationship with Republican voters whatsoever uh, in a in a safe Democratic district uh, her entire career. So, I I just don't see this going any way that that is good. I you know I also I mean I think and this is part of it. I think what she wants and this is like what everyone wants now is for the commission to produce a document that will be endlessly quotable, um, whereby um, everyone can cite it and. Um, look at expert opinion as fact. Um, and, and that will be able to shape the perception of the siege on the Capitol. Right. I mean, um, I just, I, I, I feel like I would like there to be, uh, you know, a serious and definitive report on what happened and the lead up to it uh, that with subpoena power and, you know, so people say what they need to say. I just don't believe that given the uh, Republican lack of interest uh, in pursuing any of these questions and the democratic interest in um, keeping this alive uh, as a, as a hot political issue to remind suburban, you know, to, to extend the you know the the problems that you know soft Republican suburbanites had with Trump, uh, and and connect all of those feelings to the Republican Party in general, which may or may not be a legitimate thing to do, but nonetheless that's what they want. That this that that's what it will really be for. Can I give you an example that yeah. just came through my inbox? Um, because for my sins, I get on a lot of uh, sort of progressive uh, politicians' mailing lists. And uh, Cori Bush has just sent out a fundraising appeal where she says, you know, boasting about how Con- much- Congress Congressman, Congressman from Missouri, first from term. Missouri. Yeah. Missouri, yeah. She says, Cori is already leading the fight in Congress to hold Republicans accountable for the white supremacist insurrectionist attack on the Capitol and his work, you know, so, so that is already, you know, it's basically you have to give this woman more money because she's the only person who will hold the white supremacists accountable. White supremacists has occur, is going to pop up in all of these fundraising appeals on the campaign trail for 2022. And what will be I'll be interested to see how what the tail of this message is for the Democrats, because there's a there's a point at which um, focusing on the uh, the white supremacist uh, part of this or having a veneer of bipartisan commission, you know, that, that Pelosi wants when in fact it's actually just a, a partisan investigation um, could backfire. It's going to backfire in two ways. On the right, it's going to just fuel more conspiracy theories if it turns out to be a f- totally partisan document that's held up 
by our cultural elite as the definitive word on what happened on January 6th. But there could be a backlash among voters who are tiring of this, these, these, you know, structural this, you know, white supremacist that the specifics of what happened. And this is to Noah's point that he's been making on the podcast for, for a month now. The specifics of what happened mattered and it matters on many levels. People should know why our capital was so easily breached, how it was planned, what we can do to prevent it in the future, all the stuff that a 9-11 commission did. Um, and, and for that reason, I think that the Democrats just saying, oh, this is about white supremacy, could actually, although their base will be happy with it, could backfire on them with the more moderate voters who aren't convinced that that's the only thing going on right now. Well, I mean, let's let's try to apply some perspective here. They're enamored with this white supremacy nonsense, but Cory Bush is a backbencher. The progressive left is trying to push Democrats in this direction. They're actively trying to push it because there is resistance. You can't have the Trumpian wing of this party on this commission because they will actively try to thwart an investigation to this sort of thing. They will try to muddy the waters. They want it to not be definitive. So you do need to get some Republicans who have removed from this sort of thing. If you think it's in, it's it's automatically... Um, uh, illegitimate because you don't have Trumpian officials on it, then yeah, you're going to think it's illegitimate because what you want is not an investigation. You want an effort, a, a big, long report that is dedicated to exculpation. That is not what we need here. We do need ex-officials who are completely untethered to the political landscape right now. Former office holders, former governors, former members of the business community, people who have nothing, no stakes in the game, nothing on the table to lose. And if we don't get that, then we'll know it's going to be um, a partisan effort. But to prejudge it, I think, is an exercise in negative partisanship on our own parts. Nah. I mean, you can disagree, but I think it's rather definitive that we'll be prejudging events before the fact based solely on our assumptions about what these people think, not how yeah. to behave. Yeah, that's that's pretty much okay. it. Okay, that, that's negative partisanship. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Enjoy that's it. not negative partisanship. That's 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 bitter experience. <laughs> not negative partisanship. And by the way, the other problem here is the notion that um, you you evade or avoid um, uh, conspiracy theories by producing official reports is, of course, belied by the granddaddy of all yes, official uh, reports, yeah. which is the Warren Commission. Right, so. Right. Um, we uh, should add bitter experience to crushing morosity as another catchphrase. Uh, there we go. <laughs> yes, yes. Dearly indeed do I purchase experience, as Fanny Burney uh, says in her novel, Evelina. Um, and you know what, what else is bitter experience? HR issues. HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations. Those HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, so, Noah, I just think that you are a more um, – uh, either you're a more optimistic 
person than I am, or you're more of a believer that sort of sweet reason and good rational uh, approaches and the and and sort of like uh, the golden mean are are more uh, clung, you know, are things that we cling to more than this uh, new world in which we just retreat to our corners. Well, that's just really charitable. Um, no, I just think that it's it's rational at this point to try to avoid prejudging events and dedicate yourself only to the very difficult project of accurately describing what's in front of your face. I mean, that alone is hard enough to sort of prejudge events before they happen, I think leads us down some some rather fatalistic uh, rabbit holes that ultimately prove more often than not to be unfounded. So this is just what I'm trying to do. Uh, I, I think that when we've gone down some of these rabbit holes, they've proved to be founded. That's part of the problem here is that I think that was true a generation ago or, you know, at a different time in American uh, po- political and social life. Um, but that uh, now uh, the the sort of rise of extremism as a, as a motive force in the politics of what are otherwise should be otherwise moderate political, you know, movements in an effort to garner voters is the story of our moment. And it's of course, not just the story of the Republican party's embrace of conspiracy, believing that, you know, two thirds believing that Biden was on, wasn't really elected and all of that. But, um, but precisely this uh, new theory of everything that is, that is, white supremacy that all you do is say white supremacy it's the magic ticket to unlocking the door you know and getting control of willy wonka's factory you know just just say white supremacy and you're there is no defense you know i mean i said willy wonka maybe it's more like the karate kid kick you know there's no defense because suddenly if you're saying no it's not white supremacy you're blind or deluded. And if you say, well, there's a little bit of white supremacy, but it doesn't control everything, then you're just an apologist. So okay, I'm going to channel Johnny and say that kick was illegal. He should never have won. Sorry. <laughs> By the way, where are you on this? Me? Where are you on the Cobra? The question was, was the kick legal or was the kick did in fact Ralph Macchio win illegitimately i think he won illegitimately but but he was allowed to win illegitimately because he had already been uh subject to such uh inappropriate use of force by the cobra kai folks in the first movie but honestly really johnny johnny just did not it's really lovely to watch cobra kai because he finally gets his moment so you see it through his eyes and i never actually liked the ralph macho character i was in the minority among my friends with that but he was i didn't really like him he seemed a little full of himself Ah, well, certainly on Cobra Kai, he is full. Well, that's yes. one of the brilliant qualities of Cobra Kai, the show on on Netflix. Uh, this this uh, the Karate Kid characters thirty five years later is uh, the revelation that Daniel, the Ralph Macho character, is a self satisfied, you know, slick, you know, but kind of um, vulgar winner. Um, and 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 Johnny is a kind of weird, soulful loser, um, uh, and ultimately more likable than Daniel. So it's a it's a it's a great show. Um, anybody else watching anything? Well, if you want to talk about it, there was Claudia Conway on. Oh, 
American oh, Idol. Oh, AB Watch. That was last night, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So um, it was just heartbreaking um, is, is, is really uh, all I could say about it. So it was the season opener. I watched it just by chance. I don't watch American Idol. Um, and uh, Claudia Conway, who's a teenager, I don't know precisely how old she is. 16. I think she's 16. Yeah. 16. Uh, and um, her father, uh, George Conway, brought her there. He, he came off as um, um, being sort of uh, very warm and sweet and like, you know, teary and concerned and, and, you know, he, he was fine, but the truth is, so she gets there, she says who she is. Um, she sings and she's like, uh, so many of these, um, contestants who normally try out and then get turned away nicely. She's a much better singer than, you know, the average 17 year old. Um, but very clearly not under normal circumstances, she would not be uh, passed on into the competition. And what they, and they would say to her what they said, what they always say, what they said last night to pe- people much better than her is you have talent, you have this, but you're very young. Go work on that talent. Go live your dreams. Go, da, 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 you know, and uh, this time around, it's a no, you know, um, but very obviously because of who she is and the attention and uh, the tabloid nature of it all. They, they voted uh, two to one to, to send her through. Um, and it's heartbreaking because I don't know the nature or the extent of her problems, but she is essentially just a kid um, who is struggling. She's a, she's a teenager with, with problems that have played out in a really unfortunate um large scale tabloid way and nothing about her being involved in this is good. Uh, especially because her involvement in it is purely exploitative. And well, and, and the message that it sends even beyond as I think you're right, Abe, the, the kind of the horrifying, uh, toll it might take on her to be continue to be exposed in that way. The message it sends to girls, her age and boys, her age that at 16 years old, being notorious on TikTok and, you know, having public meltdowns is a path to fame in a way that talent no longer is. That's not a message I don't, that I think is a really good one for the, for the, any kid in this country to say nothing of one who's publicly struggled with some, some mental health issues. You know what? It's amazing you say that because at the, to another contestant, um, Katy Perry had said, if you don't sing this next song in the way that you really feel it or something, You'll just come across as as someone who's famous on TikTok, and we're looking for an American Idol. That was what they said to another contestant. Yeah, look, the heartbreaking thing here is that um, uh, our our current reality has conspired to place this one uh, teenager uh, with a difficult, outrageously difficult family life that we know about in a way that we would never have known about it before and known about her struggles and difficulties in a way we would never have known about them before as she sends messages out into the ether about how she's being mistreated, about how she wants to be emancipated, about how she's being abused, and her parents conducting some kind of a public uh, uh, political argument 
uh, about uh, one of their uh, bosses, you know, in, in in full view of the entire world, and a man making himself famous by abusing and abasing his wife's employer. Um, none of this would have been possible before 2007. Um, and we keep talking about what the human cost is of social, the rise of social media. And this is, in synecdoche, the cost. The cost is that, um, that private pain and difficulty, now there is no barrier to it all becoming public and becoming a matter that we can all feast on and enjoy and in in uh, voyeuristic ways watch like we rubberneck at a car accident, but it's much slower, and it's much more. And you can repeat watching it over and over again, and you can really get yourself deep into the weeds. And it is, I have to say, it is disgusting of American Idol to have decided to do this with a with somebody who is a minor. That is to say, everyone in America understands that Claudia Conway is in emotional extremis. And if she's 18 and she's, you know, attained her majority, she's a voter, she can serve in the armed forces, all of that, that's one thing. She's 16 years old uh, and they are exploiting a minor's pain and foolishness and, you know, distorted prism of the world behavior for rank what? To get 500,000 more people to watch their stupid ass show? I mean, you know, I look, we know that Rob Long has a great piece in the March issues of a commentary right now at commentarymagazine.com about reality TV and how it works and how you get a, a bonus and a premium for being crazy. And that may well be true. Uh, but it should not be true of somebody who is 16 years old. I mean, that is, it's, it's not child abuse. I don't know what it is, uh, but it is abusive, particularly at a moment when people are now reckoning with the fact that Britney Spears, uh, this documentary that the New York Times has produced about Britney Spears, um, who uh, was uh, sexualized as a teenager by her record label, by herself, whatever, and was treated like a sexual object before she reached the age of 18, by the entire American pop culture industry, interviewers, talk show hosts, uh, people in glossy magazines, and all of that. And here she is now. It's 20 years later. She's clearly very sick, you know, uh, and her, 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 uh, and, and, and you get this sense that maybe her mental illness issues were exacerbated by this objectification of her as a teenager. And I see no difference between that and what happened with Claudia Conway. So it's just, it's just horrible. And, uh, and, and uh, Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, who are people I've known for decades uh, are, you know, they're, the soul searching that they need to do is um, pretty deep. Uh, and with that, uh, I will uh, bid you a fond farewell until tomorrow. Um, don't, you know, go hug your kids. <laughs> and uh, for Christine Aben, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.